0: Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, editor in chief of No Film School. I'm Emily Booter, managing editor of No Film School.
1: I'm John Fusco, producer at No Film School.
0: It is November 3rd, 2016, and on this week's show, we'll talk about the Mac versus Microsoft showdown, news from the front lines of the Dakota Access oil pipeline protests, the death of Vine, what to pay for a screenplay, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, and new film releases. <music> this week's show. As always, we're here in downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, bringing you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Although we are coming off of our Halloween highs this week, we're still pretty excited about the fact that the Alamo Drafthouse finally opened in Brooklyn and we got to see a sneak preview. We all went together. What'd you guys think?
2: It's weird in there in a good way. There's wax Figurines of everything from people with syphilis to babies that are you know that were aborted too early, like very weird, very deranged. Awesome. Not just in the
0: movie theater, by the way, for your listening pleasure. <laughs> there's a bar uh, in the uh, in the theater that also houses a wax museum.
1: It's kind of a weird translation because it is in a mall on Flatbush, and there's like a Target there. And a food court. So I guess it's different than the traditional Alamo draft house in the sense that it kind of reminds me of like the Metreon we were talking about or in a, San Francisco. Yeah, like a more traditional multiplex or cineplex.
2: Yeah,
0: it's not a standalone movie theater like the Alamos in Austin. It's more like what we'd be used to going into a mall, except that when you walk in, it feels
2: like one of a kind.
1: Yeah, totally. It definitely has all the uh, sort of culty appeal of an Alamo Draft House. But we also went and saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre at Syndicated last week. And it was like the day after we went in and got a tour of Alamo Draft House. And there's something still kind of charming about having a a smaller dine-in venue. We got to only see one of the biggest uh screens that they had at alamo draft house when we were there so we've yet to see what the more intimate screens are like there um but it's cool to see that sort of thing blown up on a bigger scale
2: syndicated by the way is in bushwick it's a bar and movie theater
0: yeah we've just been so excited in general since the start of this show to report about all the kind of explosion of independent cinemas all over new york debunking the myth that indie cinema is dead Plus, Emily and John were really excited to get the chance to Shining shame me once again since the carpet in the lobby of the Alamo Drafthouse is from The Shining, and guess who had absolutely no idea? So getting into our headlines this week, even if you didn't hear us talk on the show a couple weeks ago about how documentary producer Dyer Schlossberg was arrested while filming at the Dakota Access oil pipeline protests in North Dakota, you may have seen a strangely large number of people checking in to various Native American reservations in the state of North Dakota on your Facebook feed, even when they were like sitting next to you at work. So this story continues to gain traction with yet another doc maker, Oregon's Lindsay Graizell, getting prosecuted for filming another pipeline protest in Washington state. This time, she and her cinematographer, Carl Davis, are facing up to 30 years in prison under charges that include felony criminal sabotage. Again, this is just for filming protests. Meanwhile, one of our favorite directors, Taika Waititi, has been getting lots of attention for tweeting support of the protests. He's amazing. He's amazing. And especially because we now know he's somewhat politically active and it's not just him. He was doing it along with his uh, some of his current films, big stars like Chris Hemsworth. Now, Waititi comes from the indie world, but is now directing the next Thor movie, hence his hanging out with Thor himself. We know that this whole issue centers around the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, who've been protesting the construction of the pipeline, which would travel underneath the Missouri River, their primary water source. But what the hell is actually going on down there? To find out, I called cinematographer and friend of no-film school Loretta Prevost as she was driving down to North Dakota to continue her own filming of the scenario. So what
3: have you been doing in North Dakota? Um, I've been making some video pieces on the demonstrations that are happening around the Dakota Access Pipeline and on life at the camp. And the camp is uh, a place where a number of different indigenous groups and their allies are living uh, with the goal to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. And then from that base, groups of people go out and do accents, um, which can also be called prayer ceremonies most of the time, um, at different work sites. Now, last week, um, the camp had established a new camp right in the direct line of the Dakota Access Pipeline, and as probably were aware, there's a lot of uh, action around that, and that was rated by police. Okay, so what do these protests look like? What's actually happening there? So when the camp moves to its new location directly in the path of the pipeline, they set up a camp, and they set up tents and a place to cook and teepees, um, and they stood alongside the road, and they sang songs, and they had signs that said, you know, water is life, and they maintain a peaceful, nonviolent presence. There's a lot of prayer involved. The police have obviously been pretty active. Have you had any problems or seen other people with cameras um, be uh, confronted? I haven't been around police, but I've heard a lot of first-hand stories. Um, It's definitely the impression of the journalists out here that the the journalists are being targeted by police. A journalist is there to record what's happening, you know, and is not there um, in direct support of the pipeline. And so journalists that have just been there recording what's happening have been arrested and charged with engaging in a riot um, and with trespassing. And my understanding is usually that, um, you know, if a policeman tells you you're trespassing, normally you get one warning and that you should go. Normally you're allowed to go, but it's it's from the people I've talked to out here, it sounds like people are just getting arrested immediately. There are at least two journalists out here that are flying drones with photo equipment, and that imagery... Um, it's really powerful because it's really strong visual, this big disruption in the landscape that uh, the the construction of the pipeline has thought kind of encroaching on um, the camp. And the imagery is also very powerful when you see, you know, 75 policemen just over a hill waiting to come into the camp. And those journalists and those drones have been targeted. Last weekend, two different drones were shot. Uh, One was shot down uh, by police. And the other drone was uh, shot, and it just broke the GPS portion of it off.
2: Where Where is a good place for people who want to learn more and follow what's happening to get information?
3: Um, so where I'm putting information out, I have just started a little production company called Mirrors and Hammers. dot com. A lot of my work is going through the Real News Network. The main camp has a website that they've put out called Oseti Sakowin Camp, that's O-C-E-T-I-S-A-K-O-W-I-N, camp.org, and that's a good place to find out um, information that the camp is putting out, and if one wanted to be involved, how one could do that.
0: In our next piece of news, another social media platform has withered on the,
2: wait for it, vine. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Vine has gone to the place that all good apps go to die. Where's that? (laughs) Vine Heaven, the place where everybody has Vine on their phones because nobody I knew actually used Vine.
1: So it's a place for both the app and Vine enthusiasts.
2: Exactly. Gotcha. (laughs) Hey, just because the app died doesn't mean the users have to, God forbid. Vine, the app that lets you share videos six seconds at a time, announced its closure last week. And although the service had been purchased by Twitter, it just couldn't compete when Snapchat, Facebook, and Instagram expanded their own video capabilities. Now we're noting it because Vine in particular had some filmmaker ties, not only because it was essentially a video storytelling app, but also because it actually courted filmmakers as users. One of the big early promotional events was actually a six-second film competition held at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2013. The app was particularly attractive to animators and comedic actors who were able to take advantage of its restraints to do some pretty creative storytelling. So one of the three Vine co-founders has already gone ahead and launched another company that seems to combine all of the best elements of the social media apps out there. It's called Hype. And it lets users broadcast live videos from their phones while also sharing photos and videos to create what Variety has dubbed a social collage. I think the storytelling potential of hype might actually have a greater impact than that of Vine. So let us know what you think if you started playing around with the app
1: there were such thing as Vine stars for a while, you know, like people actually got representation from Vine videos that they did and started making a tremendous amount of money if they were actors or if they were hot or whatever. Um, But I think that, yeah, once Snapchat started the whole stories thing, that kind of just negated any sort of value that Vine had because not only were you sort of held to the restrictions of a short time limit, but you could actually build upon it um, and sort of make like mini episodes based off of that. It just has way more technological advances, just being able to write stuff on the screen and sort of add tags to whatever you want. It was a better idea.
0: Speaking of apps and live streaming, we reported this week about a cool new feature that Kickstarter's launched called Kickstarter Live, which lets you live stream straight from your campaign's page. Even better, um, it allows viewers to interact, chat, and most importantly, pledge directly from the live feed. And there's a feature in beta that in- integrates the stream into Facebook Live so that you can reach audiences in both places at once. Now, this seems like a natural fit for live product demos, but we think filmmakers could really benefit from it. You could do things like bring your supporters behind the scenes of a shoot or host a Q&A with your film's lead actors, If I were running a campaign right now, this new feature might encourage me to choose Kickstarter from among the crowdfunding contenders. What do you guys think?
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a cool way to get people involved. And if they see it, they might have more of a motivation, I guess, to donate to you. But it seems like the hardest part about that would be to get people to actually watch it. Um, so it'd have to be particularly engaging in some way. You're gonna have to get pretty creative to keep people's attention spans on that. Whenever Facebook Live, and this might just be me, but whenever Facebook Live sort of uh, Q and A's, appear on my newsfeed. I just kind of scroll by them, honestly.
2: Um, Well, sometimes it honestly also feels assaulting, like you're being forced to watch this thing and you're being forced to pay attention to the fact that it exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the difference with the Kickstarter thing and, and Facebook Live is that,
0: like, yeah, you have to get your audiences potentially to come to Kickstarter to watch your live event. But it's it's interesting you brought that up because they did anticipate this. They, they have it set up so that the video then saves in your Kickstarter campaign afterwards so someone doesn't have to be present at the live thing. It's a little bit gimmicky, but I think half the battle of attracting people to support your crowdfunding campaign is getting their eyeballs there in the first place. So this could be a great tool. I think it, you're right, though, if you use it, you know, well responsibly if
1: you use it also in the traditional sense of like a vlog or something then it could be cool because i know that a lot of kickstarter strategy has to deal with sort of keeping your audience engaged and providing them updates with how your project is going so if you decided to sort of use facebook live uh, in that way instead of sort of having a written component to your kickstarter that's kind of cool especially if you can save it.
0: Yeah, and I think especially with films, like, in pre-production, you have so many things you can share with your supporters. Like, I think it'd be cool to, you know, bring your costume designer in and give someone, you know, give your supporters a progress report on how, like, the costumes were shaping up or bring them on a location scout or, like, really, it could let you really kind of bring your supporters right directly into your process, again, if you play it right.
1: Yeah, there's plenty of room to be creative and, um... That's cool.
0: Seems like we're having a kind of techie-oriented show this week. And on that note, I'm going to bring in Charles Hain to get us up to speed on some gear developments.
4: Hey, this is Charles here with the Gear News. Uh, So last Thursday, the same day our podcast was released, Apple released its new MacBook Pro, which is the sort of biggest Gear News of the week. Although, really, it's about the hardware and the software together that makes it so interesting. Uh, This generation has a few features that should make Filmmaker's pretty happy, but like all Apple products, has some features that will definitely piss a lot of people off. The alienation that we're gonna get with this generation of MacBook Pros comes from Apple's decision to drop all connectors except Thunderbolt 3. No more HDMI, no more USB, no more MagSafe. This is very Apple. They drop things the minute they think they might one day become out of date. They drop the floppy disk like several years before it was out of date. If they could make it so that you wirelessly charge this thing and do all of your data wirelessly, so it could be a sealed little laptop with no ports, they would totally do that. Um, they can't, but they've given us only one port anymore, which is Thunderbolt 3. And the one little headphone jack, although they've said if it was just about headphones, they would drop it. They've only kept the headphone jack for all the pro audio applications people use it for.
1: Did you hear that there's actually been rumors uh, that the iPhone 8 will be able to charge wirelessly? Like there's going to be no wireless port at all? That That's something that I've been reading on the internet.
4: I haven't actually read those rumors, but aren't there a bunch of Android phones that charge wirelessly that have like key charging built-in yeah, QI? Yeah,
1: I, I think you can like place it on uh, some, I don't have an Android, so I don't know for sure, but I think you can just place it on some sort of like circular, yeah. some voodoo Well,
4: circle. there's a couple of charging pads. There's key and there's another one. And like Starbucks, has it built into the tables? The new Toyota Tacoma, it's built into the dash. You just sit the phone on it. Right. And you can get cases for a Mac, but nobody uses them. But apparently there are Android phones where you never plug them in. That would be cool. It would be totally cool, although knowing Apple, they would invent a whole new Apple standard yeah, instead sure. of using the standards that exist. So Starbucks will have to buy all new tables or or table dongles. <laughs> table. So, I hate
2: the word dongle. I, I hate it.
4: I think it's funny. Well, if you get a new MacBook Pro, you're going to need like lots of dongles.
2: Mm. Oh, mm. It reminds me of like a tonsil mixed with a dingle. <laughs> <laughs>
4: This is going to mean you're going to need a dongle to read SD cards. It's going to mean a dongle to plug in your phone. It's going to mean a dongle for almost everything. I Oh, my God. It's amazing the power I have over Emily just saying dongle over and over. It's very satisfying. It also means, though, in a real park, you can now charge the laptop from either side. So whichever side of the bed you sleep on, you can plug it in from that side when it's in your lap, reading or consuming media at the end of the day, which I find very exciting. Um, so in two years, everybody will use Thunderbolt three for everything and the dongles won't be a problem, but man, for the next year, it's going to be really annoying. And I can understand why a lot of people are very pissed off, especially if you just bought some USB thing recently. Um, but I think all of the benefits are so worth it. It's got a four gigabyte integrated graphics card only on the 15 inch retina, not on the 13 inch, which is great. You're going to get faster renders out of Premiere and Resolve. You're going to get better graphics processing. It's going to be awesome. It's got better cooling. The big thing for filmmakers is the screen claims that it's going to be a 2020 screen. The old screen was a Rec. 709 screen, which is the old HD format. Rec. 2020 is a bigger color gamut for 4K video. So if you're delivering the Ultra HD projects, you'll be able to more accurately see the 2020 video. Um, And in fact, that leads me really well to the next update. They did a full upgrade of Final Cut Pro to 10.3. Now you'll notice I said full upgrade and 10.3, not 11. That's because if you bought 10 at any point, if you bought it in 2011, this is a free upgrade, but it's a complete redesign of the interface and uh, it includes a full 2020 workflow, which is pretty great. I know Apple has a deserved wrap for charging you an arm and a leg on hardware. But it's kind of awesome that five years in, they're still doing free upgrades to this software. And um, there's a lot of fun features you can read about for the new Final Cut Pro in our uh, article. I don't know that this is gonna get many people to give Final Cut Pro a shot, but there are people out there using it. It is in use on things, so it's good to know. Um, Most of this laptop upgrade is great for filmmakers. Do I wish it had an Nvidia card instead of AMD? Definitely. Do I wish that was like a six gigabyte? AMD card, uh, NVIDIA, yeah, the 16 gigabyte of RAM limit sucks, but like, and I'm going to miss MagSafe because I trip over cables all the time. But we don't get everything we want, and I think most filmmakers will find that this meets a lot of needs. Interestingly, the day before, Microsoft came out with the Surface Studio because Microsoft is really coming after creatives super hard. And the Surface Studio is a 28-inch touchscreen desktop. I'm not gonna call it the Microsoft iMac, but it's the Microsoft iMac. But you can touch the screen and it can be vertical or you can like push it down and then it's like horizontal so it's like a tabletop, which is actually kind of nice if you're like drawing or something. And man, Microsoft really, really, really wants creatives to give them a shot to buy a PC instead of a Mac. And uh, it makes sense. Like, creatives spend a lot of money on computers. Everybody else is going to mobile. And uh, I think Microsoft has a real opportunity here, to be honest. Um, they stuck with the old USB ports, so you don't need dongles. Um, it's a <laughs> 28-inch touchscreen. It's It's got a 3D version of paint, which, like, you can do a 3D scan of an object with your phone and bring it into paint and manipulate it in 3D, which is super exciting. I honestly think this should do well. Except for Final Cut Pro, there's nothing software-based that keeps us on Mac. Premiere runs on both, Resolve runs on both. Our own Tristan Koneshka just did a test color grading on the Surface uh, tablet, which is like the little touchscreen tablet uh, laptop version of the Surface, and found it to be a usable tool for color grading from the beach or from your couch at home. So what does Microsoft have to do to get us to take them seriously? Um, The old argument used to be Apple products look nicer, but like this is a nice looking computer and Windows 10 looks great. So I honestly don't know. I don't know if it's just like high school psychology like Apple doesn't care. So we love them and Microsoft like really wants us to like them. So we kind of don't. I don't know if. Microsoft should like try moving everybody to like Thunderbolt four in the next generation, so we all have to buy dongles for Microsoft, and that would make us like them. I don't know what they have to do, but I think they really deserve a shot. Um, I think
1: I think that Apple just like out of the gate had a really strong plan to make everything seem symbiotic, and uh, it still sort of is for me. I know. Um, you know, like I have all my music from fifth grade still on my iTunes, and I'm, it's just easier to use an iPhone with that, which is what also I have. So
4: I still have. I I will say this: I Teenage Mutant No Not They Might Be Giants uh, TMND Not That was GMD. on my fifth grade collection. Uh, not fifth grade, seventh grade for me. But like I, yeah, I'm sure it's somewhere in my iTunes if I went looking for it. Back to Skull. Istanbul was once consonant. Sanstanople. Yeah. That's the that's the only song I had. <laughs> so, so do you hear that Microsoft? Give us they might be giants. And maybe the creatives will move over. So that's Gear News this week, guys. Thanks, Charles.
2: Dingle Dongle. We
0: talk about Vimeo and Indie Film Weekly a lot, and that's because everyone knows that the world's best filmmakers call Vimeo their online home. Now they've offered a special discount on Vimeo Pro memberships for you, our listeners. Save 15% when you go to Vimeo.com slash professionals. Get Pro and enter the code NFS at checkout. When you do, you can upload up to 20 gigs of video each week and showcase your videos with unlimited bandwidth in Vimeo's ad-free 4K player. Plus, they just launched a cleaner and more customizable profile page that helps you showcase your videos. You can even upload a cover video. You'll get access to all of Vimeo Pro's powerful tools and join a supportive community of other passionate filmmakers and video professionals, just like at No Film School. A couple things you should know. The discount's limited to one per person and is only valid for your first year of membership. We've got a whole slew of really generous grants from the Tribeca Film Institute due on November 6th.
1: The first is the Tribeca Film Institute Latin America Fund. The TFI Latin America Fund provides grants, professional guidance, and an entrance into the U.S. industry to scripted, documentary, animated, or doc fiction hybrid feature-length films from innovative filmmakers and storytellers living and working in the Caribbean, Mexico, and Central and South America. The next is the TFI All Access Program. This is the flagship program for fiction and documentary storytellers from Tribeca. It was launched in 2004. The fund provides year-round support to passionate and motivated directors, writers, producers, who are based in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. And there's two types of funds within this fund which is kind of confusing there's the prototype non-fiction fund and the prototype fiction fund applicants are required to apply with an online proposal and eligible projects must be in early stages of development and most importantly have an interactive component the eligible interactive projects must be in development with access to a subject and or sense of story and interaction.
0: Along those same lines, there's the TFI New Media Fund, where they accept two to four projects that receive a huge grant of fifty dollars to $100,000 in funding. It's specifically for story-driven, nonfiction interactive projects that incorporate storytelling around a social issue. They don't fund linear film projects for this at all, although they do consider interactive extensions of a standalone film.
2: My personal favorite is the TFI Sloan Filmmaker Fund, which provides grants and professional guidance in support of compelling scripted features or series that offer a fresh take on scientific, mathematical, or technological themes. So if you have the next Black Mirror, this is a good place to go. The grants range from $10,000 to $75,000.
1: And shifting gears from the Tribeca Film Institute, the Chicken and Egg Pictures Acceleration Lab has a deadline for its... Lab on November 9th. The Accelerator Lab is focused on identifying and supporting women nonfiction directors who are first and second time filmmakers. Each participant will receive a two part grant for the production of a film to be developed over the course of a 12 month program. All 10 participants will come together at various points over the course of a year for an intensive period of mentorship and workshops with industry experts. And now moving on to festival deadlines. The San Antonio Cine Festival has an early bird deadline on November 4th. It takes place from February 24th to March 4th, 2017 in San Antonio, and it's the longest running Latino film festival in the United States, as well as being San Antonio's first independent film festival. It's been running for 39 years, and it's a week-long event consisting of film screenings, panels, masterclasses, workshops and even a three-day script workshop co-presented with the Sundance Institute.
2: A place that you are very familiar with if you've ever seen Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin, we've got the Glasgow Film Festival with a deadline of November 10th. So this is the online extended deadline. It's your last chance to apply, and you can only apply via Film Freeway online. It takes place on February 15th in Glasgow, Scotland, seven years running, and it's one of the three largest film festivals in the UK. I love that city. And
0: now, in everyone's favorite segment, Ask No Film School, our community member, Josh Eagle, posted a question on the No Film School boards about how to assign monetary value to a screenplay. He says, I'm a photographer, and I bill X amount per hour and give X amount of photos to my client. Makeup, hair, styling, and film digital format all factor in as well. What's the logistical breakdown of the script business? So he wants to kind of apply the same model of charging f- for his photography business for a script. To help answer this question, we reached out to No Film School's screenwriting authority, Christopher Boone, whose own film, Sense, is being released on VOD later this month. And here's what he had to say.
5: Well, first of all, uh, I would like to say thank you to Josh for even considering to pay the writer in the first place, especially since he's kind of looking at short films. Um, a lot of times I don't think the writer gets paid. A lot of times the writer is probably also the director and DP and craft services all rolled into one. So um, I, I really appreciate that. Um, but writers typically for screenplays aren't paid on an hourly basis. And, he, and I think he was kind of trying to figure out how he could use his experience as a photographer and his hourly rate and apply it to um, to writers. And I've never really seen that done before. Um, I guess my suggestion would be to uh, take a look at what the overall budget is for a project and say it's a short film, and then maybe start thinking of it in terms of percentages Um, So look at what you're going to pay the director and um, maybe pay the writer somewhat comparably to that. So if you're allocating 5% or 10% over to the director, maybe a 5% or 10% of the budget may be accurate um, for the writer. But ultimately, it's going to come down, I think, to a negotiation um, if he's looking to hire a writer and how that writer deems his or her value. Um, and so they might not have a, a way of looking at it from an hourly rate, um, but they might be able to put a dollar value on their work and their screenplay, again, in relationship to what the overall budget is.
3: Well, what about buying a finished screenplay? How does that work?
5: Uh, yeah, that's another good question. Um, again, it so would basically come down to a negotiation. Um, I think right now we're assuming that none of this is falling under any sort of, obviously, a... Writers Guild contract, so this would all be non-Guild work, and, um, and it boils down to what uh, he or a producer has in terms of a budget uh, to put together a project, and I would remind all producers out there that you don't have a script... Um, it's going to be really hard to shoot something. But again, I would look at it from a percentage uh, basis um, over um, in terms of the overall budget. Um, when writers are lucky enough to move up uh, the ladder and if it's a production company that's a guild signatory, all this is kind of taken out of the equation at least at the minimum level because it's starting to receive a scale minimum from the Writers Guild um, in terms of purchasing a script, and then you'll also get paid for that first rewrite. And then as you move up the chain, um, as a more experienced writer, you're going to have your representation actually going out with different quotes. Um, but uh, don't be afraid to negotiate, I guess is my ultimate advice to Josh, and start talking to the writer or writers that you're interested in working with, um, and see what they think their script is worth, and then put it together with your budget.
0: Thanks, Chris, and thanks for the question, Josh. Good luck.
1: And now moving on to some movies opening this week. This one has a limited release, maybe even only in New York and L.A. at this point, but it's coming straight to VOD on Friday. Doggy Dog is Paul Schrader's new movie starring a pretty awesome duo of actors in William Defoe and Nicolas Cage. Schrader's known for his writing more than his directing, but that's because he wrote Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, and The Last Temptation of Christ. So those are hard acts to follow. His new movie is about a crew of ex-cons who are hired by a Cleveland mafioso to kidnap the baby of a rival mobster. One interesting fact that came about when researching Schrader is that he was actually brought up as a Calvinist, and his parents didn't even allow him to watch a movie until he was 18 years old. So, in the vein of no film school, he then self-educated himself on cinema, and his first big screenplay was Taxi Driver.
2: Damn, that's really inspiring. Yeah, that's awesome. And hitting Hulu this week is Punch Drunk Love. Now, everyone has a different opinion on Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, I'm sure that many of you would agree that Punch Drunk Love is definitely one of his most experimental films. It stars Adam Sandler as a psychologically troubled novelty supplier who's falling in love with an English woman, Emily Watson, all the while being extorted by a phone sex line run by a crooked mattress salesman. And he's also really in love with buying pudding. The film was recently released by the Criterion Collection. It belongs in the canon of some of the best films ever and definitely... One of the most eccentric.
1: I'm, yeah, I'm always surprised when people say that this is one of their or this is their favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film, and I've definitely heard that been said a few times. For me, it doesn't really touch Boogie Nights or There Will Be Blood, or even the well, maybe not even The Master, but um, it's definitely different than all of those two. So it's hard to place.
2: Well, I like it because it shows his range. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree.
1: Um, it also shows Adam Sandler's range which was a very short uh, sort of renaissance for Adam Sandler as a dramatic actor. And then uh, he started making grown-ups movies again. So, Rip. um,
0: I thought his performance in The Wedding Singer was very powerful.
1: Yeah. Maybe that's what got him this part. (laughs) And coming out on Friday in theaters is Jeff Nichols Loving. We've talked a lot about Jeff Nichols this year, and especially on this podcast, because it's been a pretty big year for him. Midnight Special was one of my favorite movies that I saw this year, and it was a big film for him because it was his first backed by a major studio. Loving sort of continues his growth in a different way. He's leaving his sort of sci-fi supernatural tendencies to tell a historical drama about Richard and Mildred Loving, who were an interracial couple who were sentenced to prison in Virginia in 1958 for getting married. The film premiered at Cannes in May and has been generating some pretty big Oscar buzz. What was it like there? Did you hear a lot about it when you were at Cannes? Do you remember? Or?
2: Well, I will say something else about the story. It was the Supreme Court case that actually got interracial marriage um, laws mm-hmm. or legalized. Anti- legalized. Yes, In terms of Cannes, yeah, there was a lot of buzz about it. It's a very quiet movie, um, very subtle And I think in the style of Jeff Nichols, uh, there's a lot of space to think, which Mm. is good. But not outer space. No.
1: It does star Joel Edgerton, who was also in Midnight Special. We talked to him about that earlier this year.
0: Mentioning the fact that Punch Drunk Love was released by the Criterion Collection a minute ago reminded me uh, that Filmstruck is live.
2: Yeah, so Filmstruck is the Netflix for cinephiles, or so the internet is beginning to call it. Um, It's your alternative to Netflix with all the movies that you, all the classic film school approved movies that you would never be able to find on Netflix and can now no longer access if you don't have a Netflix DVD subscription. Um, It has almost the entire Criterion collection online, which is incredible. And it will be curated like your favorite video store clerk, which I think is really cool.
1: What are some of those movies? I know you wrote an article about it. Which ones are the ones um, that stand out to you?
2: Some of the films that I highlighted that you would never be able to find on Netflix are *Night of the Hunter*, which is a classic. It kind of presaged *Badlands*. Terrence Malick's *Badlands*, um, and it's it's about a deranged serial killer who is masquerading as this you know benevolent priest, and he ingratiates the people of his town to his philosophy and then winds up murdering and pillaging. And then there is Gimme Shelter, the the greatest rock doc of all time by the Maisels brothers. So you can all dig in there at filmstruck.com.
0: I want to mention that we have a great interview podcast coming out next Monday. It's my interview with the Eagle Huntress director Otto Bell and producer Stacey Reese. And that amazing documentary is in theaters now. And you can read about everything we talked about on the show, and get links to all the opportunities we mentioned in the post associated with this podcast at NoFilmSchool.com. Please check us out, um, subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and as always, stay in touch. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter, at ElBooter,
1: at Jim John Jim, Jim, Jim John, John Jim, Jim,
0: Jim, 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 Jim Jim, and we're Dangle. all <laughs> and we're all at No Film School. See you next week.